Welcome to the Species Hall of Fame. Few of the nearly 20,000 species discovered each year ever come to the attention of more than a few scientists. And even then, what we hear about in the press is the what, when, where of species discoveries. This fails to share the human dimension of systematic biology. Who is it that discovers species, and how exactly do species discoveries come about? Today, I present an interview with an insect species explorer, finding out a little about his background and motivations by taking a peek inside the science of systematics. My guest is Dr. Joseph McHugh. He is professor in the Department of Entomology, University of Georgia, where he teaches courses in insect taxonomy and systematics, phylogenetics, and evolution. He is also curator of arthropods in the Georgia Museum of Natural History. His interests include the morphology, evolution, systematics, and natural history of insects, especially beetles. Beyond being an accomplished colleague and longtime friend, Dr. McHugh and I are part of a complicated academic genealogy. Jack Franklamont was Ph.D. advisor to Chuck Triplehorn when he was a student at Cornell in the 1950s. A couple of decades later, Triplehorn was my doctoral advisor at The Ohio State University. And after I was hired to replace Jack following his retirement at Cornell, I served as Ph.D. advisor to Joe. As you will soon learn, although Chuck, Joe, and I were all beetle specialists, there is even a twist of fate in the fact that Frank Lamont was one of the world's leading moth taxonomists. It is likely that the names of the groups of beetles that Dr. McHugh studies will mean nothing to most listeners. Cucajoidea, Coxinelloidea, Nidoduloidea, and Irutiloidea. Yet these groups include more species than all mammals and birds combined. Many are found in the most remote places on Earth, while others may be seen in our backyards. A large number of species remain to be discovered, and details of their evolutionary history and natural history are only beginning to be understood. We'll begin by finding out if Dr. McHugh has a favorite among these thousands of species. Do you have a favorite species? Do I have a favorite species? I, I have been asked that question many times by people, and I really don't have like an overall favorite species. I have, there are, there are species that bring back really special memories to me for all different reasons. You know, there were some that when I was a kid were really kind of amazing, shocking sorts of things that I have no doubt kind of helped to stimulate my interest to go into entomology. Uh, there were some that just always uh, were like an old friend when I saw them appear in the springtime or I saw them, you know, out in the summertime, they kind of, you know, marked progression of the seasons and brought back a lot of memories from uh, from different periods. And then I have ones that are sort of special because I studied them, spent a lot of time working with them in the field or because they were the first of this or the first of that that I ever did. So a lot of a lot of folks ask me that what's your favorite species you know and i, and I always kind of struggle with that because <laughs> there isn't there isn't one there are, yeah. there are a whole bunch of them for different reasons sure that makes a lot of sense well you led me perfectly into my second question which is where did your interest in beetles come from well quentin uh it's funny you should ask that because you are directly responsible for me going into beetles i'm uh, so interest... sorry <laughs> not at all not at all i, I thank you for that 
quite often. But uh, my interest in entomology goes all the way back to when I was a little boy. I was born in Brooklyn, New York. I lived in the city. There wasn't a lot of wildlife around, but whatever wildlife I saw, I was fascinated by. I tried to find out all the different kinds of leaves that were in my neighborhood, seashells that were over at the beach, and insects. The few insects that were around, especially Lepidoptera at that stage, I was fascinated with. And the very first book that I bought, I bought during a field trip to the American Museum, and it was, it was this book, Holland's, Holland's Moth Book. I bought it from the gift shop. I could not believe there were this many moths. I, I spent my lunch money. I spent my lunch money for the museum trip on buying this book because it just amazed me that there was that much diversity of just moths. And uh, later in my life, we moved upstate. Oh, actually, before we leave Brooklyn, I found a cecropia moth in Brooklyn uh, on the sidewalk in this very urban setting. And it just shocked me to see something that gigantic and that spectacularly beautiful. And I remember I, I picked it up and I carried it back to my house. I put it on a plant in our in our front yard, and uh, the next morning a male had come in, and they were mating now. There were two of them now in my front yard, and then the next day a bird ate them. <laughs> <laughs> and there and there were there were wings on the ground. Uh, but but I'll never forget just absolutely uh, how awestruck I was at something a wild creature in the middle of the city that kind of alien and spectacularly beautiful. Uh, that just was right there among us. And, you know, you never would know it if I didn't happen to just stumble across that one that had just emerged and was on the sidewalk and hadn't moved away yet. So that was very influential. Later in my life, we moved uh, to upstate New York. And in upstate New York, we were surrounded by lots of forest and, uh, and natural areas. And so I, I got a chance to, you know, spend a lot of time outside and did a lot of insect collecting, lots of bugs in jars. and But... My interest in beetles, I, I was still sort of, you know, I, I collected moths at streetlights. I collected dragonflies around ponds. But I went to Cornell University uh, for my undergraduate degree, and I was in the entomology department. I, I was so excited to go to Cornell because it was actually an entomology department. There were entomology buildings there, a faculty of entomology. While I was there, I got an undergraduate hourly job working for you. I was, a, I was a tech for you shortly after you arrived there. And you had me sorting specimens that came into you. I was sorting out lyotid beetles um, from other things that had come in on uh, slime mold samples. And the thing that really, I think, kind of a pivotal moment, moment in my, in my uh, uh, trajectory as far as entomology goes is that we got some material that came in from Steve Stevenson from, uh, from West Virginia, and it was a bunch of beetles that he had collected from uh, uh, slime mold. And, uh, and I could recognize at that point, this is a latridiid, you know, this is a liotid. I, I kind of learned the, the few familiar faces that uh, would turn up regularly on, on slime mold. And this one beetle came in, and I did not recognize what it was. And so I pulled out my trusty old Arnett, and I uh, tried to key it out through the family key, and I tried over and over again. I could not get that thing to key out successfully. So I brought it to you, asked if you recognized it. You didn't recognize it. We tried to key it out. We couldn't key it out. Took it down to the museum, uh, talked to two other coleopterists there, Rick Hobeck and Jim Liebherr, and we, they didn't recognize it. 
And it wasn't for a few days later that we realized that, you know, the family level key for the American Beatles book was wrong for that one genus. That genus could not be keyed out uh, to the family level. And I remember just thinking, there are four coleopterists here. There are three outstanding world-class coleopterists here. This is an American beetle, you know, something that occurs in our own country that was that hard to identify and that, you know, the, the best references that were available wouldn't work to identify it. And that really got me because I, I think one of the things about entomology that always was uh, uh, so attractive to me was the mystery and the frontier component of it, that there is stuff to be discovered and it's right in your backyard. You know, you, it, you can go off to exotic places where there's lots of stuff to be discovered, but there is all kinds of stuff that, you know, is right around you that is so poorly known that it's, it's just sort of uh, this, you know, mysterious world that uh, you have a chance to explore. And I love that. Uh, and so I think that's what really, really kind of hooked me on, on working more with beetles, but that also is what hooked me on Sfindity, on working on the family Sfindity, which is what I, uh, I did for my masters. So that fact that that Odontosfindus specimen was unidentifiable fascinated me. And uh, the, more I, uh, the more I kind of dealt with Sfindids, the more interested I became in sort of the rotten wood and the fungus and the slime mold and uh, that whole sort of habitat. And, and so that's, that's sort of the direction I went. Beetles on, on decaying vegetation and on, on you know, fungi and slime mold. Well, I blame you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll gladly take the blame. Can you think of one of the species you've discovered and sort of share a personal background story, how that happened? You know, often people will be excited or impressed that a new species was discovered. Almost never do people get to hear the background story, you know, and sometimes people, when they recount the story, sort of embellish it and make themselves, you know, sound like great explorers or something. But in reality, it's, it's often not all that glamorous. Sometimes it's not instant. Sometimes you know instantly in the field. Sometimes it's weeks or months later before you figure out you got something new. And just kind of curious, you know, I, I think it's yeah. neat if people get to hear kind of how, how one arrives at a new species. Well, this is, a, this is another uh, story that's connected to you. It's a, a special one to me because it kind of connects to my family uh, at home. And it is Genus Vendus Roxani. Okay. Oh, yeah. So, so when uh, I was just finishing my master's, uh, I had the wonderful opportunity of going to Jamaica and then to Peru with you. And at, at that point, I had already spent a lot of time collecting spinded beetles locally. I, I collected spindids all around uh, the northeastern United States, and I kind of knew the, the habitats where certain types of myxomycetes like, like to fruit and where they were especially productive for the local species of sfindids. And uh, you and I went off to Jamaica. And in Jamaica, in fact, I got a couple of sfindids uh, there, but they were, I think they were sfindis, which is a difficult one to, to do much with. But then we went down to, down to Tambapada, Peru. And uh, we had been a couple of days collecting in the kind of deep, deep part of the jungle where there were lots of fantastic other uh, beetles present. But I was having trouble finding fruiting bodies of slime mold and, and spindids. And one day we decided we would scope for, for other places to collect. And we took a boat ride down the, re down the river. And 
uh, we drove past uh, a part of the forest that had been cut, uh, had been cut by the local folks uh, and planted with some corn. And so what you had was a whole lot of wood, uh, relatively recently um, cut trees, maybe you know a year or two years old, big logs that were exposed to sun partially, but also had a lot of herbaceous vegetation around it. I said, that is exactly the kind of place where I usually have luck looking for mixomycetes and and for uh, spindle beetles. And so we pulled the boat over there and we climbed up into this uh, kind of overgrown field area. And within a few seconds, we had, I think, three different genera of spindids. And one of those was what turned out to be a new genus of, of uh, spindidae, genus spindus. And... Um, at that point, I was about to be married to my wife, Roxanne, my later to uh, become wife, Roxanne. And uh, and so she had put up with so much with me going through undergraduate school and then through uh, my master's degree. And she was about to put up with a lot more when I went through my PhD. <laughs> and uh, and so I very happily named that one after her. So it's Genus Fendus Roxanne. And, uh, you know, that one, that's a special one for couple of reasons yeah well nothing says romance like a slime mold beetle that's for sure <laughs> she, she she took it in the right light <laughs> she, she, like, she like, you chose the right spouse <laughs> yeah yeah she, she, she understood it was meant to be honorific <laughs> yeah so, so i'm curious in your teaching when you know when i was teaching at cornell I always observed that in every class there was a small number of students like you who were predisposed to be fascinated by taxonomy, by that yep. exploration adventure sort of aspect and and the problem-solving aspects of classifying and so forth. And I wonder today, given the huge emphasis on DNA data, given the little bit of taxonomy that remains in textbooks and introductory courses in high school and, and under division, uh, uh, undergraduate courses. I'm just curious if you, ha is that observation still true? Are there still a few uh, beady-eyed students in each class who just seem to gravitate toward that? Yeah, well, I'll give you cause for optimism. Uh, they are definitely still there. I, I refer to them as, you know, critter kids. They were critter kids. They were, they were people who were fascinated with nature uh, from the start. And I, I can't really make an assessment whether there are fewer of them today. There, there might very well be fewer of them today, but they are still there. And it's funny because it does not take very long to figure out who they are. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, so I teach, in I teach in taxonomy. And um, it, I would say that probably by about the second week of class, I, I know those people. You can see it. You know, they, they sit down at the scope and they are like, totally fascinated locked in on it you take them out for a field trip and they are on their hands and knees you know crawling around through the through the leaf litter they there are just some people that have this natural absolute fascination and connection to the natural world and they might like lizards they might like uh you know fungi they might like insects of some type or another, but you can just see those folks, you know, give them a chance out in the woods for a little while and, and at a microscope and you can recognize them. They're still there. <laughs> Boy, that is, that is cause for optimism. I'm glad to hear that <laughs> because, yep. you know, the system's trying to beat it out of them. And I, <laughs> I don't think it's possible. I, I just yeah. think it's, it's too fundamentally interesting to some of us. 
you know, the, the worry is, will they get a job someday doing that? You know, they have that fascination. They probably will have it their whole life, but whether they ever can actually mix together, be, be fortunate enough to mix together a career with that natural, uh, you know, affinity to nature, that, that is the, that is the, uh, the tricky part. And that I think it's a little harder, you know, that's, I think is clearly harder to do today. Yeah. Let, let's dig a little deeper into that. A few years ago, there was a paper and Andrew Hamilton and Terry Irwin and uh, were definitely authors. And one of the upshots of the paper was the suggestion that in the future, there won't be professional taxonomists, that describing species will be relegated to amateurs who will do that. And professionals will be doing, you know, presumably uh, DNA sequencing or something. I don't know what they'll be doing. I find that objectionable on so many levels, I can't begin. And I think the science, when it's done at its highest levels, you know, involves so much in terms of theory and sophisticated methods and analysis and so forth that, yes, it, Taxonomy is unique in that amateurs can make incredibly important contributions. And that can't be said in most areas of physics or chemistry or other sciences. And th that actually is a benefit in, uh, on a planet where we know so few species. But I think there's always a need for professional taxonomists to be leading the way. And I just refuse to accept that dismal future. But I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I, I, I think that, you know, systematics, there's so much to doing good systematics that uh, it's hard for me to imagine that would be that would be the case. Identifications, though, you know, with, um, you know, barcode identifications, with image recognition software of various kinds. I think that kind of simple identifications of, you know, well-known faunas will will be increasingly done by people who maybe uh, do not have a professional position to do uh, to do entomology or systematics, but the actual kind of recognition of species limits and the proper way of establishing a, uh, a new species to the biological community is a it's a complicated thing to do properly, and I can't imagine. Unless we completely give up on the idea of, you know, what is an appropriate way to uh, establish a species for, for the biological community, I cannot imagine that that will not have systematists, actual systematists involved in the, in the process. Well, sadly, I think there's some evidence that some people at least are leading us in that wrong direction. And what I'm thinking of, and I don't know if you've read the papers or or uh, not, but recently there were uh, a couple papers, and uh, I'm associating them mostly, but they weren't always the lead authors, but with Mike Sharkey, who's a hymenopterist, and uh, Dan Jansen, who's a tropical ecologist, and they present something they call minimalist taxonomy. And the approach in a nutshell is a DNA barcode, one photograph of a specimen from one angle, and just bare minimum information associated with them to be able to establish a scientific name. Yeah. And this may enable an ecologist to identify a species, 
but then what do you have? You have a, a name and almost no information about it. I mean, to me, it's it just totally guts systematics. Yeah, that that whole that whole movement is is disturbing. I understand the the position that they're coming from. This you know vast number of of undescribed species that that they have uh, in these uh, in these parasitoid groups that are indistinguishable from each other in in most regards, except for with uh, genetic data or maybe host data and genetic data combined. Now, I, I can I can understand sort of what uh, what pushed them in that direction, but I, I totally agree that being able to uh, connect something to a a barcode that has no other uh, biological information, anatomical information, nothing else about the the species, um, pretty hollow. You know, I, I it, it it is uh, it gives you a name. It gives you a name, and it might give you uh, a count if you're looking for num- numbers or something like that. But it seems uh, it seems like an awful price to pay, you know, uh, yeah. for for speeding up just establishing the, yeah. the taxum. Well, I'm I'm retired and therefore somewhat bulletproof, so you know I can kick people's shins at will and. <laughs> Think nothing of so. If some of these questions get onto thin ice, don't feel you yeah. need to answer them. But, but I see, I see the whole increased emphasis on DNA data being along that same line, sort of losing the plot instead of instead of wanting to understand species for themselves and all the things that make each one interesting and unique. We've shifted the focus just to the service of identifying things. And there's no denying that's important. It's essential. And right. no one should take away from that or devalue it in any way. Right. Uh, but we can have both if we choose to support taxonomy. Or we can right. simply focus on other field biology areas and meeting their need to identify things and then ignore systematics. But, of course, with the extinction crisis underway, the the argument that DNA people seem to have always made is that you know they're going to do this initial sorting and then taxonomists can come along afterwards and fill in all the missing details. Yeah. Well, that's not true when tens of thousands of species are going extinct each year. You can't right. leave the task for some future generation. It's now or never that we document this stuff. And just the the total lack of appreciation for fundamental exploration of biodiversity just amazes me that so many biologists just seem to have no appreciation for that. Well, you know, it's, uh, it's the age-old story that, uh, you know, it's kind of like a, the dual-edged sword of being such a foundational field. You know, we are, we are the foundation underneath biology, uh, systematists, and, you know, we do draw off information from all fields of biology to make our, our foundation, but everyone depends on us. Everyone depends on us to have have you know the species established to be able to recognize them uh, to have them classified in a meaningful way. They expect all that to be there because they want to do their science on top of that. And uh, that that frustration of you know I've got this important work that I'm doing, and you darn systematists just need to give me that foundation so that I can do my work, rather than build the taxonomic workforce to have more people 
producing that foundation, it's, it's an attempt to find other ways to have a shortcut around that. And in Mike Sharkey, uh, in his case, and, and the other folks who are doing the, the kind of minimal description approach to, uh, to taxon uh, descriptions, he would say exactly the case, he would say exactly uh, the same point that you would say, that species are disappearing, you know, by the minute. They're, you know, we're in a massive biodiversity crisis, and we just need to get these things established out there. It might not be great. Somebody can can embellish on the descriptions later and clarify those species later, but we, we just need to get them out there now so that we know that they exist or that maybe someday we knew that they existed. <laughs> so, so, you know, I, I, I again, uh, can kind of, can kind of see the, the motivations that are pushing them in that direction. Um, I definitely can understand that. But again, it's at a, it's at a great cost. Uh, and it is, you know, for some taxa, maybe it's easier to accept. Uh, and, and for those, and for those, those parasitoid hymenopteran groups where there, there are all these cryptic species that they keep coming across, vast numbers of cryptic species. That's probably the worst case scenario for for uh, the traditional sort of uh, species description approach. Yeah. Well, the, you introduced me to a uh, a phrase or an acronym when you were a student, and then you've made a career of it, uh, which were LBJs, oh, <laughs> little oh, little, yeah. little brown jobs, as you used to, and I presume probably still do, still refer do. to many of the beetles you study. You work on some groups that are incredibly diverse. But the majority of species in them are incredibly unknown to anybody, I mean, including other, even most taxonomists will never knowingly see most of these species. Uh, there are obviously some really common and some really important species in these groups too, ladybird beetles and mm -hmm. picnic beetles and a variety of them, and some big showy things like the erotilids, the pleasing fungus beetles you've worked on. But let's face it, most of them are small nondescript at first glance things. And so defending your research on those to the average person on the street, why should we be concerned with thousands of species of little brown jobs that most people will never see in their life and seemingly have very little impact on our, uh, on our uh, well-being? Well, part of what attracted me to the, the LBJs is the same sort of fascination with the kind of unknown world that I mentioned earlier, this is a the kind of group of little of of beetles that has escaped a lot of attention. You know, it's not one of the big ones. It's not they're not the showy ones. They're not the big ones. It's their taxonomy lagged behind the taxonomy of many other beetle groups dramatically. So there's a lot more really raw, basic taxonomy needed for those groups. There was, you know, there were undescribed species right in your backyard, literally, that you, know, you could, you could uh, contribute by, uh, by describing and finding out something about their natural history, because you cannot know how valuable something is if you don't even know what it does. If you don't know uh, what it eats or where it lives, how can you know that it's not important? There is more and more appreciation in, in recent years for the insects that are associated with decaying wood and fungi, uh, how, how important they are for healthy ecosystems. And uh, just because they're small and brown and they escape your, your, your immediate attention does not mean that they are not important. Many of them are very important indicators of, of forest health that over in parts of Europe, people have come to recognize that, you know, this or that species is linked to, you know, a forest that's in this kind of stage of, 
of um, you know maturity or disappears with with impact uh, from humans quickly. So there are bioindicator species. There are lots of species that we do not know the most basic biological information about. And so me being attracted to those was that unknown thing again, trying to find out, first of all, what's there? And second of all, what do they do? Um, and, you know, where do they occur? Yeah. So, Yeah. One, one other thing I find interesting about your career is that you've both made impressive contributions as an individual researcher and scholar, which is the normal mode of taxonomy. But you've also been part of several really large NSF projects that involved multiple investigators. And when I was at NSF, we toyed with the planetary biodiversity inventories with the idea that teams could make progress faster than individuals. But there's a natural tension in taxonomy between sort of the creative side, where when you describe a new species, it's like a work of art that you have this intimate connection with. And yet, there's obvious efficiencies in teamwork. And I'm just curious, given your experience on some of these large projects and also as an individual, where you see that balance for taxonomy? Yeah, well, I, I've always felt, you know, as Clint Eastwood once said, a man's got to know his limitations, right? <laughs> and so, you know, I, I know what my strengths are. And I know that I have colleagues who are fantastic at other, other things that I am not good at. They have labs that are, are set to do certain things, or they have backgrounds in, in other areas of systematics that are better than, than uh, my background is in that area. And, uh, or they might be more knowledgeable about a particular taxon than I, than I am. And so I uh, have always really enjoyed and benefited from uh, collaborative relationships on, on projects. And, when it comes down to who gets credit for the species, species descriptions and things, a lot of times that, that shakes out pretty naturally when you, when you see kind of how the manuscript comes together, who can actually contribute to that part of the manuscript. And I think a lot of times it has, I, I, I think in my collaborations, it has never been an issue. People felt yeah. like, you know, I did not contribute really to that part of this. You know, I, I, I did this. You guys. Put your names on as authors of the taxa, but I'll be on the I'll be on the paper, but not on that um, on that taxon. I don't think we've ever had a sticky a sticky issue with with who got authorship on a on a taxon. Really encouraging uh, mm -hmm. to hear that observation. Yeah, but it's been it's been uh, it's been wonderful to to do these collaborations. I've got a project right now. This this is I think you'll find this amusing. I got an email from uh, a a Russian entomologist asked me if I would take a look at a, uh, a Baltic amber spindled specimen and try to identify it for him. I was very excited. And they sent me the, it was an x-ray tomography, spectacular, spectacular, crystal clear detail at really high, you know, uh, magnification. And uh, I, I looked at it and right away I said, oh, that's a Surrey Lonid. And, and I looked at it for a couple of minutes and I was like, that's not just a Ceralana, that's a Mycoceras. I, I, I even know what genus that is. That's, a, that's an extant genus. And so I, I ran it through my books. You know, I ran it through the keys that I had to just see if I was, you know, mistaken. But sure enough, it keyed out perfectly to Mycoceras. Uh, and so I wrote back to them and I told them, you know, it's a, it's a Ceralana, it's Mycoceras. And, and so at that point, uh, it, was a, it was a Russian researcher working with a Ukrainian researcher 
working with another Russian, uh, a Russian who ran the tomography equipment. And then we brought Adam Shlapinsky in from Australia. So a, a Polish-Australian researcher who was an expert on seriwanity. And uh, in uh, a couple of weeks, we pulled together a description for that, for that thing. But it was, you know, Russia, Ukraine, Polish, Australian, and an American in, in like two weeks, you know, all of our expertise, you know, in a expert with the, the technical uh, tomography approach. We had uh, the, the person who had the uh, knowledge of the amber material and uh, was a paleo entomologist. Uh, we had a serolanid expert. And then I just happened to be the, the kind of pivot point. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was fortunate that it kind of passed through me, but uh, it all came together. And, you know, in this, in this day, you know, with uh, politics the way it is, with, with world affairs the way they are, it was so beautiful, you know, to just to have uh, this team. My apology for the abrupt ending of the interview. The person operating our new recording software managed to botch the end of the interview. I'm comfortable pointing an accusing finger at the ineptitude of the person responsible because it was me. I am very grateful to Dr. McHugh for sharing some of his experiences and perspectives and allowing us to get a sense of the adventure and wonder in the taxonomic research and scholarship behind the scientific names that all of biology depends upon and reminding us that a great number of small, little-known organisms play an incredibly consequential role in the functions of our planet's biosphere. It has become more challenging for young taxonomists to find a professional path, but science and society remain dependent on such intrepid scientists who, through their taxonomic expertise, curiosity, and perseverance, continue to explore and make known Earth's species. We can only know if our conservation efforts are succeeding if we learn first what species exist. And we can only be certain that we eventually understand the diversity and history of life if we discover and preserve evidence of as many species as possible. Wishing species explorers everywhere happy hunting, this is Quentin Wheeler for the Species Hall of Fame. 